This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 51. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 51 you're listening to, brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Audio Technica, and Universal Audio. Got my cup of coffee, drinking it, preparing to venture into the next batch of episodes. We've crossed over the hump of 50. Now we are on 51. It's good to be here. It's good to have that many episodes under, under the belt. As usual, what do I always say? Got a great guest for you. I do. I really do. Mr. Pete Dell who is currently a mastering engineer over at Universal Mastering in Los Angeles. And Pete and I met at the uh, Pollock Audio Conference. He was one of my panelists on a panel that I was moderating. And to be honest with you, I cannot remember what the panel was. But that's how we met, of course, through the Pollock Audio Conference. When I met him, you know, he comes across like very nice, very cool guy, uh, very uh, low-key um, not boastful in any way, not a name dropper. I tell you, when I got to looking into his background, as I was, you know, thinking, oh, I should, maybe I should have Pete on the show. And I started to look up what he did. I was like, oh my God, this guy has so much in his background. It's unbelievable. So let me just give you a taste of it. He, uh, was going to school. I think he was going to get a degree in biology, but he ended up getting exposed to electronic music composition. And so as he's going to school, he's working with John Cage. So if you're into electronic music composition, you know who John Cage is. So I'm not going to go into a big explanation, but you know how like cool that is that he worked with John Cage. He did that. Uh, he spent a long time in recording studios. He has happened to work with O Prince, Frank Sinatra, David Lee Roth, the Stray Cats, Miles Davis. Amazing. Totally amazing. And then he, of course, uh, he's worked at Capitol, worked there for 15 years. And then, um, and then he, he took a staff position at Sony Pictures uh, doing scoring. And when he was there, he, was, he did, uh, worked on uh, Black Hawk Down, The Patriot, Road to Perdition just to, you know, to name a few. And then of course he felt like getting back in, into, you know, strictly audio. So he started to work over at universal uh, mastering and where he's been for the last 10 years. And he's, I mean, he's worked on hundreds of projects, but I mean, he's worked on, let's see, uh, Robin Thicke, uh, Fergie, Steve Lukather of Toto, uh, war Marilyn Manson, John Waite. And I'm sure I'm missing some stuff, but, uh, he's also, uh, done some mixing uh for rock band a guitar hero and he's also done some mixing work for uh, toby keith rachel mcfarlane rihanna yeah i mean this is just like a sample of what he's done i mean as i was reading and i was like oh my god he's worked with like he worked with tom dowd and i was just like okay for sure he's gonna be on the show so very excited to have pete on the show coming up here want to give a little um shout out uh to our friends over at Sonarworks. Uh, who I've talked about before and whose software I use all the time when I mix. And reason is, is as we crossed over the threshold into 50 episodes, I got a lot of really nice messages. So thank you for that. But um, a, one of the messages uh, had to do with, there was this guy and, and, and I can't remember his name and I apologize. So if you're listening, I'm totally not going to remember uh, your name because I'm just remembering the content of, 
of your message and it basically, you know, said, you know, thanks for, you know, talking about the work life balance thing. And he said he has a five-year-old and, you know, the show, you know, really works for him. So, um, I started to think, you know, I know many of you don't have kids, so I'll just excuse this or fast forward to Pete's interview. But, um, what I, I got to thinking like, okay, well, how, how do I make this work? Because I've got kids and I, I think it works for me because I, I work from home, uh, mix at home. And one of the reasons I can mix at home is because of that Sonarworks software. Now I was mixing at home before that software, uh, before I had it and before it was around and I was making it work, you know, there was a lot of guessing and a lot of, you know, trips out to the, to the car to double check a mix and, you know, checking on all different kinds of sources. But once I got that software and started to realize, oh, this is really translating like from the get-go, I really just started to have a deep appreciation for it. And I realized this is one of the reasons that it works for me. And it really, what the point of me bringing all that up, the Sonarworks thing, this guy and his five-year-old and me and my kids, is it all directly uh, is affected by one another. So the Sonarworks software gives me the confidence to to do my mixing at home because I know the stuff's going to translate. And what that means is, is I can be here at home. I can go and get my kids out of school when school's out. I can be a more present parent. So, and I know that that's kind of, for some of you, you're like, oh, okay, well, you're drawing some kind of conclusion there. But uh, but really, it's true. I don't have to, I don't feel the, the necessity to go book a studio to mix because I feel I can get good competitive sounding mixes out of my house. So, and you know, that's kind of a big deal. So to those of you that are kind of struggling with audio and, and parenting, you know, something you might want to consider is, is getting that software. And, um, I got to double check with those guys again to see if we, uh, have some more discount codes for you all. So have patience with me on that. I know some of you have uh, sent me messages and I will look into it. So, uh, for the time being, you know, try out the demo, check it out. I think it's, I think it's worth doing. Hey, and speaking of uh, demos, um, you know, I got together with Nina Michella and uh, James Meter and Cole Williams, and the four of us uh, put together some demos for you to download uh, of the Audio Technica 40 series mics. Not all of them, but a, a select few of them the, um, the 4087, the 4033, the 4060, and the 4047. And we did some uh, acoustic guitar, some electric guitar, and some vocals. We also did some drums, uh, which I've yet to put up on the site. I got to finish um, putting that together and I'll put that up. But that's underneath the bonus content section of the WCA website. So make sure you check that out. The reason we did that is because, you know, AT has this whole promotion going on where if you buy a 40 series mic before the end, end of the year, you get a free pair of M50 headphones, which I think is a great deal. So uh, I had approached them as I've said in the past. And I said, Hey, you know, I was talking to Gary over there and I said, you know, Gary, what do you think? I think we should do some samples because, you know, some people want to have an idea of what some of that, uh, some of those mics sound like, and it'll help them make it a, a more informed choice and hear the differences between some of those mics. Cause like, you know, obviously the 4080, the ribbon is much different, uh, than the 4060, the tube condenser. So, so uh, make sure you check those out and make sure if you uh, are planning on buying a 40 series mic or any microphone before the end of the year, uh, I encourage you to check out the, one of the 40 series mics in the, in the collection and think about doing that because they, those guys really make a strong product. They make a robust products that I think you'll have for a long time. 
and you get a lot of use out of. So make sure you do that. The banners on the right hand side of the page, if you go to workingclassaudio.com and check that out. So um, that's it. Let's get on over to Pete Dell here. Let's get some uh, some cool information from Pete. Mr. Pete Dell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this and excited to have you on. I, I you as we were kind of getting into our call there before I lost you earlier, you were chatting and telling telling me about um being a staff person and how you've been a staff person most of your life. I have been sort of blessed in that regard in that when I moved out to California from Boston where I I spent most of the 70s, I moved out here in 1980. I kind of decided that I wanted to get a job at a place called Wally Hyders. Definitely is long gone by now, but one of the reasons I, I decided I wanted to like put all my efforts into trying to get them to hire me is that they had seven or eight really great recording studios. Plus they had three remote trucks and uh, they did mastering, they did TV, they did feature films. It was kind of like your one-stop shopping center. And uh, I was very, very fortunate to be able to, uh, well, I'm, I'll give you the Reader's Digest of the backstory. I was also a, a bass player when I lived in Boston. And when, during the day, if I was on a shitty uh, recording session, I'd say, well, you know, I'm really a bass player. This is just what I'm moonlighting doing. And if I was on a crappy gig at night with some bad players, oh, I'm really a, <laughs> I'm really a recording engineer. You know, I'm just kind of filling in the blank here doing this. I found this really great story uh, or interview with you uh, on the lastmiles.com, I think it was. Uh-huh. That was is a truly fascinating story. I mean, you're, you're starting like Los Angeles and, and Boston, but just even going back a little further, well, actually, I guess most of your main musical interactions, I assume took place in uh, Boston rather than in Rochester where you grew up. Yes and no. I mean, uh, I was one of those, I guess, lucky kids in that my growth spurt, if you will, happened fairly early. By the time I was 12, I was already 6'2", 160 and could convince people who owned clubs and bars that, I was legal aged, <laughs> so I was already playing in clubs at, you know, 12 and 13, and I was always the youngest kid in the band, and a lot of great music happened in Rochester, obviously, just not only because of the Eastman School of Music, but a lot of great musicians came from there, and as I like to point out to my friends who grew up in California, it's frickin' cold back there, so you stay in the house and you practice and a lot of great musicians came from there. My parents were musical. Well, I, I think you said there's three seasons, June, July, and winter. <laughs> That's the old joke, and it's painfully true. Uh, and then you went to Boston in, in 1974, is that right? That's all right, yep. I got my degree in, in music, and it's an odd one. I got it in an electronic music composition. Now, today, when people use the phrase electronic music, they typically mean something more along the lines of EDM or you know dance music or some trippy something or other. But, but then, you actually worked with John Cage. That's right. Yeah. I mean, we were definitely uh, on the forefront of technology there and bleeding profusely, as some would say. But it was a very fertile time, crazy time, but a fertile time. There were a lot of interesting people. And because at that point, electronic music was so new, like, for example, all the synthesizers that I worked with at Albany State, where I went to school, did not. Uh, have a keyboard as, you know, like a piano kind of keyboard because it's not at all what we were about. We really didn't want to be linked to the world of vertical harmony and all that. We already had plenty of good things that do just that. And so why why force this new thing into, re, you know, recovering old ground that's been uh, 
so well-traveled. It seems like the the perfect story, I mean, of like the people that you've worked with over the years that you've run into, you know, after you got out of, uh, I, I'm not sure where this falls in the timeline, but it seems like as far as uh, people you've worked with, but you talked about working with uh, working at a studio and working with Prince. Yeah, I worked at Sunset Sound as the second studio I worked at here. At first it was Wally Hyder's, as I've already mentioned, and I lasted about a year there. And then I got an opportunity to jump ship and go to Sunset. And at that time, Prince was just kind of coming on the scene. And I'm not really sure how he chose Sunset, but it was pretty apparent that he did because he made it a mission to uh, to hound everybody. <laughs> um, a, a very wonderful person and a great engineer named Peggy Bloom. She was Peggy McCreary back then, but she was the girl who sort of was the quote-unquote unlucky one who got, quote, stuck, unquote, working with Prince because everybody <laughs> thought he was a whack job. Plus, he's a little quirky, as you know, I'm, I'm sure that's part of the persona that everyone knows and loves about the guy. But the guy was an absolute freaking genius. Absolute genius. And he was so disciplined, he would, um, you may be recalling, I think I told a story about, I think it was 1999, that huge record for him, where he came in, you know, at nine in the morning or, you know, some very responsibly early hour, kicked you out of the studio for 20 minutes, wrote the darn song, and then you better have those drums all tuned and mic'd because he's going to play the daylights out of them. And, and he did. And then layered all the other stuff. I think probably that particular song took all of like 17 tracks or something. I mean, you know, refreshing when you think of the track counts that people do today to, to come up with something that isn't nearly as memorable a piece of music. And then probably by one o'clock, we were mixing the darn thing and it, three o'clock running down the street to have the thing mastered. And by five o'clock, having just written the song eight hours earlier, you've got a, a hit song that's still still on the radio now. How many years later? 25 years and, later. Wow. And what a, what a fresh concept just to get it down right then and there on that day and get Absolutely. it completed. Yeah. The guy was so, so musical. And I still think he's, his music is so, you know, fresh and immediate sounding. And it, it comes from that place where... You know, you don't have to go home and think about the guitar solo for a week and a half before you show up at the studio and do it. That all just kind of flows naturally from the fella. And just amazingly talented guy. Loved working with him. And you also worked with Miles Davis. Yeah, that's kind of the high on, watermark for me. Yeah, on, on the Tutu album. Right. I was working with um, with Tommy LaPuma, the great producer, on a George Benson record. And one day he goes, uh, Tuesday, we're going to do a date with Miles. And I'm thinking, Miles Standish? Miles Copeland? You you can't possibly mean Miles Davis. Yep, Miles Davis. So we did we did one day in the studio. This is when I was working at Capitol. And I guess they had started the record somewhere else, and they weren't happy with the trumpet sound or something. And uh, I was fortunate that uh, another client of mine, James Newton Howard, had uh, the famous and wonderful film composer, had been kind enough to refer me to... to um, to Tommy LaPuma, so I was, that's why I was doing the Benson thing. We were supposed to do just one day, and Marcus Miller was the, the musical producer on the project, and Tommy was more like the executive producer. As I say, we were only supposed to do one day of recording with Miles that as a, sort of as a test, test drive to see about him liking the sound that I got on him at, at Capitol, which was a spectacular place, and great room, great mics, and all that. And uh, Marcus had a cassette of uh, some other material that he wanted 
Miles to hear. I guess that Marcus used to play in one of uh, Miles' many ensembles. So they had a very good working relationship. And Miles was soliciting that he wanted to hear some more stuff. So I'm making a cassette to cassette copy while we're working on the one track that we were doing that day. And I fogged up terribly and that uh, I let the entire, the contents of the entire cassette get transferred over to the one that Miles took home that night. So he loved everything that, that he heard. So instead of working with him for just the one lonely day, I got to work with him for several weeks because I screwed up his cassette. We should all make mistakes. <laughs> That's a good mistake. Yeah. <laughs> best one I probably ever made. Not the only one I now, ever made, but probably the best. So at what point did you make a transition into mastering? Uh, I left Sony Pictures. Well, just for those of, who don't know the, the complete saga, I left Capitol and, and sort of stopped being a recording engineer mixer of just records only, if you will. Although at Capitol, that's a great place and they were versatile enough to to do feature films and some tv stuff as well because the rooms are probably good mid-sized studio you can probably get 35 40 people in studio a or maybe even b as well um well i left there in 99 and then i went over to sony pictures and the lure then was that um the, the folks who uh were running the scoring stage then i had worked with at capital and they were fellow engineers and they were luring me with the thoughts of you know that the the film world was the last bastion of deep pockets and big budgets and the sky's the limit and it sounded pretty good to me so i went over and checked it out and you know while it was fun it was basically a, like a one ring circus every day and of course the variety would be provided by the composer and because the music is different every day but it's it's an orchestra every day some days it's 45, 50 pieces. Um, I think the biggest date I ever remember doing, we did Amistad, you know, the Steven Spielberg movie with John Williams. And I think the band was 110, 120-piece band and a 50-voice choir all live. And the room is so big, you could still, there's still room to play basketball. Damn. It's a, a very, very large stage. In fact, the story about the stage is it used to be a shooting stage and they did Parts of Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz. I mean, there's some history there for sure. But a great sounding room. And I worked there for like three and a half years, I think. And uh, I, I, not long after that, I, I came to Universal. And the, the, the thought was at the time that 5.1, you know, the surround sound format that had been in, in use in film music forever uh, was finding its way into music-only kind of releases with SACD and DVDA and some of those formats that, you know, everybody thought were going to be the next big thing that unfortunately weren't. Uh, but there was talk at the time of them building a 5-1 mix room that I would get to man and I would do all these, you know, surround sound mixes of catalog stuff because Lord knows Universal has oodles and oodles and oodles of great catalog stuff. I mean, we probably have 80 or 100 different record labels under this umbrella we call Universal. You know, MCA, uh, Motown, Interscope, Geffen, A&M, Decca, Deutsche Grammophone, on and on and on and on. But as cheapness and luck would have it, they never built the room. So I had to scramble and look, look for something to do. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate enough to find that the department here, the one guy who was really the main mastering guy was severely overworked and 
I figure, well, here, let me be your understudy and, you know, cut your parts for you and I'll learn the craft. And, you know, Lord knows I've been in the business long enough that, you know, maybe if some of my old clients that I used to work with as a recorder or mixer uh, found that I was doing this and that I was over here, maybe they'd give me a shot and we could, you know, bring a bunch of business over here. And that's, that's kind of the way it's worked out, although it's been slower than, <laughs> slower than I would have hoped, but it's, I can't complain at all. We're, we're very, very fortunate here. Unlike many of the, the guests that have been on Working Class Audio, I think you're like the only one that has really spent the, this amount of time working at a facility. That's a very different and, of course, semi-secure way to work. Double underlined semi. Yeah, no kidding. Well, because I know that, you know, nothing's guaranteed, but why, as far as like, you know, the grass is always greener kind of concept. Do you ever look at your freelance friends and go, God, man, I should get out of here. Uh, certainly those thoughts have passed through the old gray matter uh, more than a few occasions. You know, I'm an old fart now, kind of, sort of. When I was younger, there are plenty of occasions where uh, I thought oh, it would be fun to throw your hat in the ring and try and, you know, become an independent person where you had all these options and <laughs> you got to keep all the money. <laughs> if there was such a thing as money coming in. But the drag about being an independent is not only the good part is you get to keep the money, but the bad part is you have to beat the bushes for the money. You know, you have to chase people and negotiate and all that. I mean, obviously, I'm sure a lot of the best uh, and most most successful kind of people are, are wise enough that they, you know, make the good cop, bad cop thing. They have a, a business person who does all the negotiating and you don't have to look like the hard ass trying to stand up for yourself to, to get what you should be being paid for your services. But uh, uh, there was a time, a long time ago, uh, when I was, I was, in fact, like I did go to Europe to record. I did go to Canada a few times to record. But I was getting paid not only the same rate that I was getting paid when I was still here in Hollywood, but uh, I was getting paid through the company, you know, through on the company check and all that kind of good stuff. So it really wasn't all that different except that I was, working in, in new and different studios on other continents and, you know, kind of living the life that one would have been living if one was a independent full-time. The good part there being is that I didn't have to chase people for money. I just got my regular check. But it wasn't what anything like what, you know, I, I would have been able to charge had I been an independent. Right. So, you you know, there, there's good and bad with any and all things, I I'm, feel I'm safe to say. I've had a good run. Well, and let me ask you this. I mean, out of all, uh, with respect, you know, to, to age, um, well, first of all, how old are you? If I may ask none, your damn business. No, I'm 65. Okay. You know, my wife works a, works a corporate job and, and I don't, and I'm a freelancer and I always, she, you know, occasionally the discussion of retirement comes up and I always think to myself and I'm 46 and I always think, you know, I'm going to keep working as long as people are willing to pay me. And, you know, I, I, I try to think ahead and I think, who are some people that are, you know, pretty advanced in age that are still working? And I think, okay, well, Al Schmidt, he's, he, you know, he's kind of up there. And I, I don't know if you are, or most of your listeners are aware, but not only has Al won more Grammy awards for engineering than any other living, breathing human being, but all of, I don't know, a month, maybe six weeks ago already, he's the first of us to get a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, right? So God love All right. Him. And at the awards ceremony, they had, uh, well, they had Don Was, who is now the head of Blue Note Records, amongst his many other 
myriad accomplishments. He's tremendous. Um, he's now the head of Blue Note Records, and he told a story how just the week before, Steve Miller, who's still you know floating around and is on Capitol, still a great artist, his new record he brought to play some of for Don in his office. And Don listened for like 30 seconds, he said. This is part of his speech to give Al the award. He said that uh, he heard 30 seconds of this, and he said to Steve Miller, he goes, did Al Schmidt mix this? And Steve Miller goes, well, yeah, how'd you know that? He goes, because I've never heard your voice sound this good. And <laughs> and here you have a guy who's, you know, uh, theoretically, should his, his eardrum should have stiffened up so he can't hear shit anymore, right? But the guy is still at the top of his game so much that, so that the guy who's the head of the A&R department, who are typically not the most astute in hearing, at least that's the joke, right? Don right. said, you know, Don identified just by hearing 30 seconds of this of this song that, that it was probably the work of Al Schmidt. I think that's just fantastic. Wow. And it, it, it really kind of gives a perspective to, I think, a lot of our younger listeners. I mean, if you plan your career accordingly— and uh, deal with things appropriately, deal with people appropriately, you can have longevity. I mean, what's your, what, are, what are your thoughts about yourself and, and as far as your longevity and how long do you want to stay in it? Do you still have a passion for it? Oh, yeah. I'm, I think I'm very blessed that, uh, you know, every day I get to come to work, I enjoy what I do. I enjoy who I do it with. Um, I will say that the recording engineer part of me when I did that every day, because I had a career as a musician for a while too. Um, being there at the, you know, at the moment of creation when the musicians are still there and things are, you know, a little fluid still. And that as an engineer with a musical background that you can make a contribution that would actually potentially really change a performance and change a recording and, and hopefully all, all of the above in a very positive way. In mastering, I hardly ever see anybody. Nobody ever comes to mastering anymore. And, you know, like if you hear a problem here in the mastering studio, there's only so much you can do because the, you know, the musicians have left the theater, if you will. So I, I, my favorite aspect would still have to be that of a uh, recording person um, because you're there with the folks and, you know, at the moment of creation. And that's arguably the most exciting part of the program. Uh, it's very satisfying being a mastering guy. I really enjoy it. And I've got a fantastic room that I work in here at Universal. I'm just so lucky. And the the real cherry on top was that I lived three quarters of a mile from here. <laughs> you know, I could practically walk. But now we just we just bought a new house, and I'm I'm four miles away. So still pretty darn good for LA. But uh, as far as where the horizon is, you know, if they keep the doors unlocked here for another four or five years, I'd be thrilled. I still enjoy what I do, and I get paid fairly well. And as long as the ears keep working, because as, as age creeps up on you, yeah, your eardrums do stiffen up, uh, and you don't hear the high frequencies like you're used to. Um, in Al's case, <laughs> I'm sure he doesn't need to. He knows when he puts the right mic in the right place, and you know, has this much, I mean, he's got so much experience that I'm sure he's not ever fooled. Although there have been stories, very cruel stories of, uh, <laughs> guys who work with him, who like to mess with him. Like, uh, uh, the triangle is probably the, uh, the instrument that has the most, um, uh, high frequency partials in the sound that it makes. Right. 
So mm-hmm. the, the the old joke is like, geez, Al, you think you got enough triangle? And he'll say, what triangle? <laughs> Do you ever feel like you're in a bubble working at a facility like Un- Universal? A bubble how? Well, in a, a bubble in that you come to work so you don't have to you don't have to hustle jobs because those I assume are coming to you and you're just, they, you know, say, you know, Pete's oh, going to do I, this. I, let me just stop you right there. Um, first off, the, the mastering department, I would say 95% of what we as a department and very definitely myself do every day is independence. We hardly do anything for our huge record company. Wow. You know? Yeah. I mean, occasionally we will get, you know, like yesterday, I had uh, I had to create the Japan version of this guy James Bay, who's a great singer from England. If you get a chance to hear him, very young guy, but a very good guy. And so uh, I think um, Bob Ludwig up at MasterDisc in Bangor, Maine, uh, had mastered the record, and then for the J- Japan version, we had to stick another couple three bonus tracks on this to make it different from, you know, the domestic release. Uh, like the Japan one had 18 songs and the other release had, I don't know, 14 or 15, say. So we would take, you know, the the, the mastered album that, you know, Bernie Grunman or, or um, in this case, uh, Bob Ludwig had done. And, you know, following that roadmap, master these last few songs so they could sit with the rest of the record and sound like kissing cousins, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so that's, that's the type of stuff. Every once in a while we'll get to master an album that's for somebody who's, you know, how should we say a, a front runner on one of our record labels, but typically it, almost everything is independent. And how do we get the independence? It's certainly not because the phone is ringing off the hook for universal. No, just like an independent, I'm out there glad handing, going to shows, you know, um, going to album release things or being on panels, you know, like, like how you and I met at, at potluck con. That's right. Uh, doing that kind of stuff to, uh, you know, to, so that people will perhaps even think about you if, when, and if they need something mastered, you know, it's, it's the very same techniques that I would, would be working if, if, if I was independent, uh, you still have to use those same things. Um, even though, even though I got a regular check, I'm out there, you know, trying to bring business in every day because if I didn't, <laughs> who knows where I would be, you know? <laughs> then they'd get somebody else to bring that business in, right? Well, like I say, I am fortunate that I'm, having been around a long time, I know a lot of people. And, you know, it used to be um, like if you're, if you're an engineer of any kind, what, who you needed in your back pocket are the producers. You don't really need you know, a boatload of artists because artists typically make one record a year or two. Right. But if your job is making records, you need people who are making records every day, you know, like producers who might put out five, six records a year. That's who you want to, you know, that's the horse you want to hook your cart to as somebody like that. That's interesting. I think for a lot of people, uh, they may, they may be under the same impression when you hear like, okay, universal mastering, that's, you know, I was under the assumption that, you know, you basically had work funneled to you from within the company, but this is, this is kind of a revelation to hear that. I mean, you uh, are within uh, the big umbrella, no, well, but I mean, you do have to hustle. Sure. Oh yeah. Well, you think, okay, go back 
Sherman set the Wayback Machine for like 1960, right? Okay. And then uh, if you're a record company, like when I used to work for Capitol, they have world-famous studios. But do artists on Capitol want to record there? Hell no. And it's certainly not because there's anything wrong with the facilities or anything. It's, it's they're too close to the folks in the suits. Hey, stop what you're doing. Work on my song. That's the next single. Or, hey, you got to change that word. I can't get you on radio if you sing that word. You know, there's just the possibility of too many intrusions from people who you don't need to hear from right this moment. You know, suits in the record company. Uh, that kept people away uh, who were on the label. But, you know, no problem. There were oodles and oodles of people who were on other labels who wanted to come in and work there who weren't going to be interrupted by Harry coming down the elevator and telling you to change that word. Also, you used to have an A&R department who would get the songs for you. They'd sign you, get you the material that you're going to record, marry you up with a producer and an engineer, and they'd tell you to go downstairs and make your record and be quick about it. And then come the 60s, when you had lots of people who became singer-songwriters, you know, like the Beatles or the Bob Dylans or whatever, I mean, people were writing their own material. They didn't need that part of A&R. Nor did they need them to be assigned a producer and or engineer by the record company. They, they got somebody that they had a relationship with or, or whose work they admired and always wanted to work with, say, right? So the whole paradigm shifted for label-owned recording facilities. You know, you no longer had the power. The artist sort of had the power of the artist and the producer about <coughs> when and where and with whom they're going to record. So... Fortunately, we still have studios, but the, the client base is totally different now than what it was back when the business model was originally conceived. We're very, very, very similar to the life that one would lead if one were, you know, an independent. Do you think that there's an advantage for uh, an independent artist to go to Universal over uh, an, a, an independent mastering facility? What do you think that you guys bring to the table that others don't? Well, there's, there's a few things, one of which, it, let's say if you were on our label or, you know, one of our millions of labels, the likelihood of your album getting um, surreptitiously and early released to the internet, you know, killing record sales. I mean, I, I got to admit, I don't quite understand how this keeps happening and how people think that there's something cool about taking somebody's, somebody else's work and, you know, emasculating it or, or really hurting the value of the, the thing by releasing it ahead of time. That's the big paranoid thing uh, with the record companies is that, you know, Kanye West is going to get leaked by somebody at, at the mastering studio or, or somewhere along the line in the A&R department. Or, I don't quite understand what people think they're going to get out of it. What, you're going you're gonna to get laid because you, you know, leaked the new Kanye West record or something? I, I don't quite get it. Um, at least, you know, say in Asia where people are early releasing movies, you know, DVDs of feature films that haven't even been in the theater yet. You know, people are making money hand over fist on that. And at least that makes sense. I don't, I don't quite get, you know, leaking something to the Internet. But anyway, security is a big thing that, that we can provide, and not only for people who are on our label. I think the other biggest thing that we can provide is here in our department, there's three mastering studios and five production studios. And by production here, I mean, we're making product, <laughs> uh, stuff that ends up going to the plants to be made into physical CDs or 
off to iTunes or any of the other new digital delivery uh, media like uh, HD tracks for uh, high res, you know, 96 or 192 kilohertz audio and, mm-hmm. you know, all, all the other ones, Amazon and blah, blah, blah. We get to hear, because of the production department, we get to hear every release that goes through on its way to being manufactured or released. Almost everything gets QA'd. So the halls are always alive with the latest and the greatest. And it's, I mean, as I say, uh, Universal has 80 or 100 labels, but we also distribute and manufacture everything for Concord Records, for Walt Disney Records, for, well, we have a sort of a brokerage for an independent thing. It, it, uh, so we I forget what it's called now. I think it's InGrooves these days. Keep changing names. In grooves, and they probably broker, you know, just do the distribution of uh, like another 80 or 100 independent little labels. So there's lots of stuff going through here. And the fact that we get to hear basically everything is a good thing. I mean, in fact, that's, that's really what you want your mastering to accomplish is that not only can we make up for any deficiencies or anomalies in the mixing environment that you were where you made a decision you thought you had enough bass because the speakers in the room told you you had enough bass but when you get to mastering you find oh dear i'm very bass shy or equally happens equally often as the flip side you started piling on all these all this bass while you were mixing because you you couldn't hear it in the room you were in you got to mastering and there's you know it's just swimming in low end so in addition to being able to correct balance, you know, and frequency-wise, we also have the ability, because of where we're at, to know what the latest thing is for this style of music that you're bringing in today, right? So we know what, what the market is all about these days, and, you know, I think that's, that's a fantastically valuable thing, because you don't want, I was going to say that uh, back 30, 40 years ago, back when vinyl was still king, and and popular music was a much broader stroke than it is today. You, you'd find that mastering guys got a name for doing a certain kind of music. You know, like Bob here is the blues guy or uh, Sam there is the jazz guy and so forth. But nowadays, you really need to be a jack of all trades. You really need to be able to be nimble in any and all kinds of music. And that's another reason why I, I'm, I'd be thrilled to work another several more years because it's fun come to work every day and you don't get bored because you don't have a steady diet of of any one kind of music now lots of different kinds of problems to to solve so it's a good thing i enjoy it to get back to the point of your question about what makes universal a valuable place for indies is uh well first off all the stuff i've been outlining but the other thing is it's very competitive our prices are really pretty dirt cheap and People are always shocked to hear that because they figure, oh, I couldn't possibly afford to go to a place with a big name like that. But that's really not the case. That's interesting. And you guys have a um, an online component to uh, the business. We also have a relationship with another company that I bet a lot of your listeners are aware of called TuneCore. We yeah. Do all, we do all the mastering for TuneCore. And there's quite a gamut there, too. I mean, not only in styles, but in level of excellence some days you know the music is just jaw-dropping you just can't believe how great it is and there are other days where it's just (laughs) (laughs) jaw-dropping jaw-dropping in the other direction so we have all kinds and i think tunecore is really dirt cheap I, i think they charge like 75 a song is the online component available to the average person who isn't using tunecore oh yeah sure if you go to universal mastering 
Track.com. We have, I think it's $99 a track for internet mastering. And let's say if you have alternate mixes, let's say you have an instrumental or you have a TV mix or something, it's an extra 50 bucks. Pretty reasonable. What is the difference between, I know you, so I, I feel like I can call you up and I can say, hey, I have, a, I have a record I want you to master. Sure. We have that communication. There's, you know, a particular interaction that takes place. What's the difference between that and somebody say anonymously or not, I, I don't want to say anonymously, but let's say you got somebody in Colorado and they call you up or, or they don't call you up. They go through the online mastering process. Is there a difference in that interaction? No. Well, I mean, there could be, but there needn't be. Um, we got plenty of cold calls or, you know, referrals or, you know, how it is with anybody in, in our, in our universe. Uh, they see your name on the back of a record they enjoyed and they thought, well, hell, you know, I, I can dial his number. I can get him to do my record. Why not? So um, if people are here in Los Angeles, even if they want to take advantage of the internet thing, we encourage them to come on down, bring a cup, bring, bring your music and we'll give you a free rundown. And especially we like to offer that when people haven't finished mixing yet. For everybody out there, if you're mixing and you have a relationship with a mastering guy, and if you don't, make one. <laughs> While you're mixing the first one or two, bring them into someplace like a, a place that's more of a laboratory, like a mastering facility, because we can expose things to you that you may or may not have been hearing. And you just by, you know, giving a quick listen in a more of a laboratory environment to your early mixes, then you can make whatever adjustments are necessary. And then when you are done you have a record that's got perilously little to do as far as fixing it and prepping it for mastering. The other thing is people often want a quote, like they want a, you know, like a, a flat fee to do an album of 10 songs, say. And we don't do that really anymore. We have, and strangely enough, it didn't, didn't work out so well. So what we, what we would like to do is we ask them to provide their material, we give it a listen, and then we, we give it a ballpark and, it, you know, Having heard the music, we can either say, this isn't even ready to be mastered. You need to see if you can go back and address this or that. Or if it is already to be mastered, we'd say, well, okay, well, now that I've listened to it, I figure these fall into this category. Then, yeah, I can probably do this whole thing in three and a half hours. And the rate is such and such. And there you go. So it's, it's really not all that different from the cold call to, you know, the good buddy who I've met a couple of times before, but haven't seen in a long time and you live out of town. It really isn't all that different. We try to give the music enough opportunity to reveal itself by either them tipping their hand and sending it all to us or coming by if they're if they live locally. Either of those things is a good thing. For a lot of artists and and even to some degree a lot of um up and coming mixing or recording engineers, mastering always carries with it a certain level of uh, mysticism and uh, Oh yeah, we burn a lot of sage in here. We definitely do that. I've got a lot of a lot of crystals and <laughs> just kidding. Yes. Just kidding. A lot of flex capacitors. <laughs> yeah. People always say, well, what makes one mastering engineer better than another? And I'm always like, oh, uh, well, uh, I don't know. I always struggle to explain like, what, what do you think are the differences between you and other <laughs> mastering engineers? Not just you in particular, but mastering engineers as a whole. Uh, obviously, some of it is, is gear, but not much because, you know, a talented i look at music like i'm a, i'm a wine person i love wine and i there's no reason that 
a, a very good winemaker can't make a, a very good wine in a less than great year. Uh, and conversely, a guy who's not a great winemaker can take a spectacular vintage and put out something that's undrinkable pretty much. Uh, that's a good analogy. The main two things you, you want in, in a mastering engineer or facility or both is a place where you can really hear what the issues are. And I'm fortunate enough, my room, check this out. My room here at Universal is, it's like 36 by 22 by 15. That's huge. <laughs> you could play handball in here if, if, the, if the walls were hard and, and they're not. They're fabric covered over a bunch of acoustical treatment in the room. But it's huge, and sitting way at the very, very back of the room, my console is 11 foot from the front wall, and the, the client couch, if you will, is easily 25 feet behind me. And it sounds the same there as it does up here where I am. That's pretty rare, but it's a wonderful thing because before I started mastering, I mean, I, I've been in a number of mastering studios, and you're thinking to yourself as the guy's working on your, your, your songs, Jesus, I haven't. This sounds so odd to me in here. I can't wait to get it out and hear what it sounds like at home or in my car or in my office or, you know, someplace I feel I know what I'm hearing. I can't tell in here. It's so weird. But that doesn't happen here. Uh, everybody comes in and in 30 seconds or so, they're talking about the music or the speakers or, or something. But they're, they're, everybody's on the same page really quickly. And that's, that's a wonderful thing. Because so often, as as you know, even if you're just in the experience in mixing, sometimes you think, man, I nailed this. This balance is perfect. And you get it out to the car or home or wherever you do your critical listening. And you go, Jesus, didn't sound like this in there. This sounds awful. <laughs> or or whatever way it sounds. It, it just that it's significantly different sounding than the impression you had when you were in the mix studio or the mastering studio. So you want, you want to find a place that you, too, uh, as the client, can understand what it is you're hearing. And then you want to work with somebody who's got enough experience that they know what is a problem and what's not. For example, bass management. Some kinds of music, okay, reggae <laughs> comes to mind, hip-hop, you know, where there's going to be vast amounts of low-end energy in, in the thing. And that's genre-specific correct. That's, that's what it's all about, right? And then say you have like a punk band coming in right behind them. And the bass is nothing like that. And in fact, having stuff that sounds a little edgy and makes you uncomfortable, that's perfect for punk music, but completely wrong for, you know, jazz or... You can see where I'm headed with this. I mean, there, there are... Totally. Certain feelings that are engendered by too much or too little energy in one part of the spectrum versus another uh, are either a flaw or a feature. You know, sometimes it's exactly right to have something sound really thin and edgy. <laughs> and other times to have something sound voluminous and huge and a big pillow is perfect for that kind of music. So you want somebody who, who knows the difference, I guess, you know? Hey, all right. I want to take a little break from our interview with Mr. Pete Dell and just uh, give you some information about our friends over at Universal Audio you know about the uh, the deal with the twin, which if you buy that before the end of the year, you get some free plugins. We've been talking about that for a while, but they're currently, I want to tell you about this. This is cool. They're having a, a holiday sale over at the website for the uh, plugins. 
So they're doing up to 60% off. So I'm over on the website now. And, uh, you know, really big fan of these plugins. Like I'm looking here, some of my favorites are on here. The, uh, the AKG BX20 Reverb, which sounds fantastic. One of the things I'm really excited about that they do is this whole unison technology where they are modeling mic preamps. So like, for example, right now, I'm doing the show through an Apollo and I'm talking through the 1073 mic preamp into the Summit TLA-100A compressor. So that's what you're hearing right now is, is um, my audio technica mic going through that, that signal chain. So uh, they have a lot of great plugins over there and you want to make sure and get over there before the end of the year. I mean, there's some, there's definitely some slamming deals. The, uh, the Fatso, you know, that's normally 300 bucks. They're doing that for half off, which is great. They're doing the, uh, the Lexicon, the 224. That's normally 350. They're doing that for 200 bucks, 199. A lot of good deals to be had over there. So if you're thinking about buying some plugins, this would be the time to do it. Oh, I tell you, they got one of my favorites. This is this, this is one of the best deals on there. The, uh, the Valley People Dynamite used to own the hardware, totally sold it. And I started to miss it, but now I've got the software Normally $199, they're doing that for $75. So if you want a really kind of super duper cool compressor that does like some crazy stuff on the drum kit, get that because that's that's one of the coolest. Uh, so that's it. Let's get back on over to our uh, friend Pete Dell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Do you think it matters as far as low end management? Like if you're doing a hip hop record or an R&B record where low end is critical do you think the bigger the room, the better? No, I wouldn't say that. Like, my main speakers here are Dynaudio BM15s, which are dual 12s, two three-inch mid-ranges, and a super tweeter, right? And I don't have subwoofers, but I don't need them. But there are plenty of guys who could work on Genelex with a subwoofer and turn out great records. So I don't know that the size of the room is is important what is important is the accuracy of what you're hearing in there of course you know for mixing lots and lots of people will tell you and very truthfully that you know you can you can learn any room but it's going to take you a while because you're going to have to take mixes out of that room and see how they translate to the real world and you know maybe over the course of a couple days a week or maybe longer uh, you can turn out stuff that sounds great everywhere because you've learned to adjust. I think it's definitely safe to say that a mastering room, you shouldn't, you shouldn't have to do that. <laughs> you shouldn't, I shouldn't have to like work in here for a week or two and take stuff home every night to see how the stuff translates here. Um, and I'm very happy to say that I don't have to do that because it's very, very true in here. So the size of the room is not so much important as that what you're hearing is accurate and truthful. And as far as trends in, in uh, problems uh, that you hear in a lot of independent music, you know, whether it's, you know, crushing the stereo bus or uh, out of phase things or bottom end, you know, if, if you could make a, a, a top three list of problems that people are consistently screwing up bef before they get to mastering or in the mixing stage, what would those three things be? Well, if I had to li limit it to three, you, you already hit on arguably the biggest one is the bass management. As, as we were hinting at, some of this is, you know, genre specific, but a lot of it is either the monitors you're using or where they're positioned against the wall. If I were to tell people 
who are mixing in their like their home second bedroom kind of studio uh, on you know near fields, I'd, I'd tell them that you need to play music that you know when you're setting up your room, and uh, so that you have a sense of how big this thing should sound in here and move the speakers closer to the wall, further from the wall, you know, things of that nature. You have to experiment to get the fullness that you know is in this recording to sound that way, or at least as um, full as you, you can get it. And I mean, the other, the other thing that people don't often realize is you want to have a triangle between where you're sitting and the speakers and you want to be as far away from they from them as they are from each other so it's a perfect <coughs> excuse me perfect equilateral triangle and you know if you need to fudge that a little bit to get the bass to come up that's arguably the right thing to do so there's the bass management the other thing is the vocal level uh, um, some speakers will allow the mid-range to be you know very uh, prominent and up front, but really it isn't, you know? So sometimes you get mixes where, am I supposed to understand everything this guy's saying? Cause I'm not, you know, <laughs> uh, you need to need to ask that question. Um, and I, I would say the, the third thing is sibilance, uh, especially with mixes that are coming out kind of dark uh, out of whatever room or facility, right? Uh, and you need to add some presence to the whole thing to make it sound not so kind of muffly or woolly, or by subtractive EQ, carve out some of that woolly upper mids, say, or lower mids, rather, or carve off some extreme bottom or, or you know, some other way to achieve uh, a proper tonal balance. And then when you've done that, now all of a sudden there's all this sibilance that's uh, exposed because you've had to brighten up the whole mix. Quite often... Uh, uh, I use a technique in mastering that probably people don't use nearly so much in, in mixing or recording, although they, they could and should. You should experiment with this, and it's called MS. And no, we don't mean multiple sclerosis. We mean mid-side. And that's a technique where you have the two channels, left and right, and you go through a matrix, and everything that's, in, that's common to both channels uh, as we know from phantom stereo, everything that's common appears in the center, right? And everything that's not in common appears on the side. So a two-channel equalizer that, until I put it through the matrix, was a left and a right-channel equalizer. Now the left channel is the mid-equalizer, and the right channel is now the sides. So like in case I've got a, a, a track that, say, the the vocal or the snare is a little tubby or dark or vague in the center channel but the cymbals or the guitars or something out, out on the sides uh are a little out of control i mean they're already a little harsh and a little bright so you can't equalize clarity or brightness or presence or any of that uh, in stereo without exacerbating the problem out on the side so if you go into uh, an ms type of uh, approach you can cure the issues with the center channel that aren't shared by the sides. And, you know, you could EQ the clarity you need in the, in the center and, and maybe even just compress the sides. You could, it's, it's a very good tool. Uh, and it's a problem solver for a lot of 
a lot of mixes that come in, like I say, that are, are dark. And then when you have to add presents, you, you open up a, a can of worms with getting uh, sibilants. And that's typically with the vocal on the, in the center. But sometimes you'll have it you know, on the hi-hat on the sides or background vocals or doubles or see where I'm hitting. There's, there, there's a lot of occasions for things to go wrong. Well, we're almost out of time, Pete, but I wanted to wrap it up with you have a ton of experience. And as you said, you know, you're, you're now in your sixties. Um, how do you keep yourself fresh and up to date with what's going on, you know, in terms of the pro audio world, in terms of music? I constantly am meeting new people. And, you know, another thing is I, I, I've sort of intimated how incredible my room is. It's so flat and such an acoustic, you know, achievement that there's no EQ in the room and it's flatter than a pancake. We often do events where manufacturers will bring in their piece of gear because as I intimated earlier, also with the size of this room, you can get 25 or 30 people into the mastering room here and you can all hear the same subtle little differences, which is pretty amazing. So we do have kind of a parade of people wanting to bring by new stuff either in the <laughs> false hopes that they'll get universal to actually pony up and buy something that ain't going to happen. <laughs> but, but to, to have an event here where they can show off their gear and, you know, what we get out of it is we get to see more smiling faces who, you know, hopefully some of whom will turn into clients. So we, we do a lot of that kind of networking. Again, that's, that's networking. That's the same type of stuff that one would hope to be able to do if you were an independent. So it's, it's the same kind of thing. Um, and just to clarify for, for some of the younger listeners who wouldn't understand uh, a little bit of what you just said, when you said no EQ, you meant no corrective EQ on the listening system. Yeah, right. I mean, In other words, the room any, is tuned in such a way that it, it's flat. Right. I mean, typically the way you tune the room is by having a pair of equalizers on the way to the amplifiers between the console and the monitor amps so you can make up for any oddities that are induced into the sound you hear by the room itself. And what I'm saying is these rooms are, you know, there's a lot of math going on to have come out this way, but it's a big, big room and it's pretty much uniformly flat. There's a couple of areas where it sounds slightly different than the majority of the room, but it's very subtle. Uh, so yeah, we do have a, a, a nice parade of people uh, come through and want to, want us to evaluate something or they want to hear something over here. And I'm, I'm talking about gear, not just music. So that's fun. And as far as music, you know, we still have to constantly go out and, and hear music and hear people and, you know, it's stimulating. I'm a, I'm a NARIS member, which is, you know, the Grammy organization. It's a very busy and very good thing. And uh, I'm trying to find more and more frequent ways of interacting with the membership I'm on the producer and engineers wing and you know, they have events and you know, there's, there's always new horizons and new people coming up with, you know, better mousetrap. This has been great, Pete. I, I appreciate your time. In, hey, my pleasure today. My pleasure. Where people can check more up on you. Uh, obviously they can go to universalmastering.com, right? Right. One thing I am uh, on the cusp of launching is I am the host of an internet TV show which is hopefully going to be view viewable here momentarily. It's called Star Chamber. 
and the URL is starchamber.tv. And it's a music show where I interview <clears throat> the star makers, you know, not, not artists per se, but typically the people behind the scenes, you know, engineers, producers, studio managers, studio designers, uh, equipment designers, manufacturers. Um, we're even going to have some people from, uh, from the film world who are, you know, either sound designers or, uh, music mixers or dubbers or, so it should be interesting. We've only shot a couple episodes so far, but it should be, um, coming soon to an internet near you. That's star. Chamber. Interesting star chamber. Okay. Well, we'll have to put, uh, maybe a, it will actually, it's not live yet. You say, uh, we have a Facebook page. There is the websites there with, you can see the, uh, the trailer and I, I'm not sure if the pilot is viewable yet, but that should be happening okay. any second. Fascinating. Oh, I look forward to it. I will watch it. I hope you do. Pete, thank you so much for being on the on the podcast. And uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. And I, I I look forward to seeing you again, hopefully at another Potluck Audio Conference. Matt, you're a gentleman and a scholar. I take back almost everything I've ever said about you. <laughs> All right, Mr. Pete Dell here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Great interview. Great dude. So uh, hope you enjoyed that. Hey, uh, just thinking ahead, you know, NAM is coming up in uh, January. And I'm planning on coming down to Anaheim. We're going down to Anaheim. So if you are going to be there, um, I think I'm going to be there on Friday. It goes Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I think I'm going to be there on Thursday and Friday. So if you're around, try to find me. Try to come say hello. It'd be great to see you. I'm going to be at uh, somebody's booth there, maybe a couple actually. And I'll be wandering around checking out all the new stuff. So if you see me, come and say hi. And uh, if we uh, happen to be in a position where we can drink coffee, we'll drink coffee. I might even have a coffee with me. So hope to see a few of you down there at NAM in January. So that's it. We are out of time. So, of course, there's Mr. Cliff Truesdale with our music. That was Chuck Smith, of course, at the top announcing the show. Cole Williams helping us out here on the the post-production side with some uh, social media help and audio help and of course audio technica universal audio and our friends at gearsluts.com and of course thank you for listening i appreciate it take care hey i know many of you are aware of this but for those of you that aren't aware working class audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called audio life and quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.